Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig. And today's discussion is continuing a uh, kind of a attack that we took a while ago discussing why there are physician shortages and discussing all the needs for reform within residency programs in particular and where the funding comes from. And so from a previous episode, we got an email from an avid listener over at the Benjamin Rush Institute, which is doing great work around medical schools across the country and introduced us to Dr. Amir Hussein, who is a dermatology resident physician at Georgetown University and said that he'd had some very interesting experiences and perspective, especially given the COVID pandemic and being rushed through uh, elevated beyond medical school and helping take care of different types of patients who are afflicted with such a terrible disease. So Dr. Hussein, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It is an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here as well. So we got introduced again through contacts at the Benjamin Rush Institute. So what really stood out about what we talked about before where you're like, you know what, I need to, I need to get on to the show. I need to get on Healthcare Americana, talk to Chris and really present my views and my experiences of medical school and residency through a pandemic. Sure. Yeah, thanks. And just wanted to clarify that um, I'm speaking as a private citizen here, so I don't represent MedStar, Georgetown, or any other institution, just my own experiences. So I thought about this last year. Um, so I actually did my first year of training in New York City. And in March, we were just blindsided by this new pandemic that started. And at that time, pretty much all the doctors were, it's like an all hands on deck experience, where we were all asked to care for COVID patients, uh, regardless of what our prior training was. And a lot of people were thrust into responsibilities that they were kind of above their normal level. So for example, um, a lot of the fourth year medical students from the university there were promoted into essentially like assistant physicians. And then they were overseen by people like myself, like a first year doctor. And then we were in turn overseen by second or third year residents. And a lot of these people had been trained in other specialties and now were kind of being drafted um, to work on the front lines. And during that experience, I wrote an article for The Hill with my good friend, uh, Greg Dasani, an emergency medicine doctor, saying that during this crisis, when we don't have enough healthcare providers, we have an untapped pool of about 10,000 graduates from medical school who are very well qualified, but just simply cannot find a residency position. Mm -hmm. And by allowing those people to practice under supervision, we would be able to alleviate some of that shortage um, and burden on providers. And being someone who supervised medical students who essentially were that exact same training, they performed admirably well and were a very vital addition to our workforce. So I just thought, like, why can't we just do this all the time and help a lot of these areas that don't have enough doctors? Our previous episodes focused talking to assistant physicians and going through some of the troubles and the heartaches they talk about getting matched up to different residency programs. You're coming from the angle of, hey, I've, I've worked with some people who are kind of promoted on the spot to help take care of COVID patients. What was your experience working with them from that standpoint? First, I really appreciated their enthusiasm. So this medical school essentially made this a voluntary position where they could give up vacation or research electives and come to work um, on the pandemic. And this was before we had vaccines or anything like that. And these students, I was just so impressed by their willingness to put themselves out there and just help out the team effort that all of us were doing. And when they were there, they were super enthusiastic. And I remember seeing 
I mean, the people that generally take care of the COVID ward patients are going to be internal medicine, emergency medicine. But I saw people in surgery, OBGYN, other specialties that were not even related to that, volunteering their time and effort to help out with the pandemic. And our hospital handled the pandemic relatively well. And I think in no small part because of the efforts of those people. Yeah, you mentioned you were in New York, and I know that was a kind of a hot spot right away. But yeah, that's interesting you say it because you're in dermatology residency now, yet you are actively working with infectious disease patients. So it was really a whole hands-on-deck approach. Yeah, luckily during um, our training now, we're a bit protected from COVID. We don't see as much of it. Um, but that first few months in New York was a very surreal experience. What are some of the issues when you talk to other people and say, you know, there's thousands of people in this untapped resource from an assistant physician standpoint, why don't we help mobilize this potential workforce to get out there? What are people's reactions to that, the good and the bad? So the, the challenge is that a lot of people aren't aware that this is a thing. So they assume that when you finish medical school, you are essentially a full doctor and residency training is kind of this thing you have to do, but everybody does it. And I've had to kind of explain to many people that this wasn't really a problem until the late 90s, during which they capped the funding for residency programs. So even though we have this big doctor shortage, there's basically not enough residency spots for everyone to become board certified. And especially when you add in uh, foreign graduates who have a really difficult time matching, you have this large pool of people that are very well qualified, but just can't find a residency position. Right. So part of it's just been fighting the misinformation out there. Gotcha. And in, in I think the last estimate that I saw was about 6,000 U.S. trained medical students that can't find a match. And then I think another three or four coming from international, but very competent. That's right. Yeah, it's the same uh, numbers I have. I mean, that's a lot of people who are just going into, well, I, I'll let you answer this one. You know, what happens if somebody can't match and continue to be trained to be a physician? That's a great question. And the problem is that there's no real pathway for these people at this time. Um, historically, you just go to residency and just be able to practice in a couple of years. And the problem is that when you finish medical school, that's very much expected. So if you are not able to get a residency spot, it's very difficult to get jobs because many of these positions will say board eligible or board certified doctor. And you're just not able to do that because you weren't able to get a residency. So what most of these students do is they spend a year doing research or volunteering in a lab um, or sometimes working as a medical scribe. Unfortunately, all of these positions are really kind of below their education level. They're not really practicing at the top of what they can do, but they have to kind of go through this year of purgatory before they're able to apply again. And even then, there's no guarantee they're going to match. Going back to what it was like to work with these medical students who were kind of, quote unquote, assistant physicians, I believe right now the state of Missouri is the only state in our union that really acknowledges that term and lets them go out and practice. But what was the experience like working with them? How was the care? What did the patients think? Sure. And first, I'll actually have some good news that um, Arizona is actually currently considering a bill to allow assistant physicians to practice. Um, so that's a very exciting development. That's great. Um, and that would be the second state besides Missouri. In terms of patient care, um, people, I think, underestimate how much medical students can actually do. As a medical student, your job is to learn basic procedures and provide kind of basic information. So that involves drawing labs, interpreting lab results that come in the computer, but talking to the patient and kind of coming up with an initial plan of what you think is going on. And a lot of that is even triage. So is this patient acutely ill and they need to see a, a full doctor immediately? Or can they wait a few hours and can we see someone else who's more sick? Mm -hmm. A lot of these skills they'll pick up with experience, but having just more physical bodies that are available, they can take care of some of that grunt level work that 
I could do as a senior doctor or a first year resident or, you know, even attending could do. But it's, again, I'm spending my time doing other things. The attending is spending time on these like more higher level processes. And they don't really have the time to spend on these like grunt level tasks. Is that a bottleneck issue that a lot of the hospitals acknowledge at the same time of saying, we just don't have anybody to oversee the medical students coming in here, or we don't have the personnel to oversee more residency positions, even if we had funding for them? Yeah, I think it's a, a bunch of factors. One of them is that this is a pretty new phenomenon. So nobody really knows how promoted medical students or assistant physicians would work from a liability standpoint or from a billing standpoint, like ultimately who is responsible for the patient. Um, and unfortunately, if they're not part of a residency program, there isn't a body that governs them. So as a resident, you have a program director uh, and a GME, like graduate medical, medical education committee that oversees your education. There really aren't these departments in place for an assistant physician. So it becomes more of like a logistical challenge and who is officially going to be overseeing them and who's responsible for them. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that it's more of a recent phenomenon. Is this a problem that's only happened in the past couple of years, or is this a problem that we've just started realizing within the past couple of years? I think there's always been a challenge of people not matching. Like even before uh, GME funding was capped, there's always some specialties. Like for example, dermatology is very competitive. Surgical specialties are very competitive. So students might not get into their first choice specialty. Otherwise they might have the option to apply into a different field or have other options. It's this kind of dual problem where part of it is now the match where there's like now every student gets assigned to one single program. They used to have a traditional interview system where you just interviewed and you got offers from all these places. The challenge was that the superstar applicants would hold like 20 acceptances and the lower tier applicants would have zero and there was just a mismatch. So the match was designed to kind of alleviate that problem. The challenge though has been without a growth in number of spots, there's always going to be a higher, higher number of students that are unable to match. Yeah, that's really interesting because I always thought, well, you know, we had funding levels back in like 1997, I think, is when the last time um, those funding levels for residencies were updated. We advanced 25 years into the future, close to 25 years in the future. That dollar figure has stayed the same, yet more and more people are graduating from medical school. And so that's why I'm like, you know, I wonder if we just had this problem for a while. And then when they instituted the match, like you said, maybe that's what kind of kicked it off and said, hey, wait a minute, this might not be the most economical way of doing it. But at the same time, I am sympathetic to candidates holding 20 spots and trying to make a decision. I don't know. How do you get around that? How do you, how do you fix that? It's a great question. I think the problem is that the 1997 bill was passed partly because there was a projected surplus of doctors. So a lot of people were saying that there's just not enough jobs for all these graduating students. So why don't we just institute an arbitrary cap on the number and then that'll take care of everything. And as we saw, that seems like an overcorrection because now there's this giant shortage of doctors. So again, like the challenge is that nobody really knows the optimal number of people that we need, because even while there's certainly people that don't match, there's also programs that have unfilled positions. So that even the match has not fully addressed this kind of mismatch in resources. So there needs to be kind of other conversations about how are we getting people into these rural areas where that's the main places where these positions are unfilled. And that's maybe where the assistant physicians might play a role. It seems like now people are turning towards PAs and NPs to help fill in those rural areas. But I think the last data I saw was that most NPs, when they're able to practice independent, are setting up the same areas a lot of physicians are and not even helping to alleviate some of that rural healthcare access crisis that we see today. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I think that was the logic initially was to allow them to practice in these 
underserved areas, but it's not really panned out that way. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting too, is that um, for Georgia, at least the way that they regulate their assistant physicians, or at least in this bill that's being considered is that they're on the same level as a physician assistant. So there's already this kind of acknowledgement that graduating medical students have the same or even probably higher levels of training than these other professions that are currently practicing independently. Do you know any quick comparisons, quick numbers on the number of hours from a medical student who is unable to match and a licensed PA or licensed NP, how their workplace education or workplace experience stack up to one another? So I don't have specific numbers on the hours. I will say, though, that medical students, the first two years of medical school are generally very classroom heavy. Mm -hmm. So they'll spend a lot of time learning basic science and research and immunology, these kind of more cognitive specialties. And then as you go into third and fourth year, you get gradually more clinical responsibility versus these other training programs. If I know, uh, if I believe correctly, they kind of have very limited time in the cognitive specialties and go right into practical skills. So if you compared a, you know, many years practicing NP or PA versus a fourth year medical student, I think that um, assistant provider would have more practical experience and like putting in lines and drawing labs and these procedural skills but they don't have the same level of training when it comes to like when the patient doesn't follow the textbook example of something, what's the kind of logic you have to think about, or what are some atypical things you can try because you've read the science behind it. Um, I'm not really clear on the assistant provider trainings, but as far as I know, medical students get a lot more of that cognitive base. And it would make sense. So you're dedicated classroom time. And then of course, like you said, I totally agree with you that, you know, there's going to be good doctors out there and there's going to be bad doctors. There's going to be great nurses and there's going to be nurses that probably should get a little bit more experience before tackling, you know, their own practices or kicking out a supervising physician out there. It's just, that's just human nature. You know, there's good auto mechanics and there's bad auto mechanics and that's just it. But I know personally, when I go to somebody, I don't want there to be any confusion on who is a doctor and a physician versus who is not, because I do know that there are a lot of variances in education training. I think that's what's been lost in this discussion is that these positions were all developed to fulfill different needs. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about a doctor shortage and there's actually a gigantic nursing shortage as well. And a lot of nurses are going into NP or these more specialized pursuits. But in New York, we just didn't have enough nurses to care for all the COVID patients. So you can add all the doctors you want, but we're not trained the same way nurses are. So there needs to be kind of bigger conversations about how are we allocating workforce appropriately to meet the needs of the changing country. Yeah, you mentioned that you've done some writing for The Hill, which is always an interesting publication. And, and it's one of the few out there, I feel, that gives equal voice to both sides of the aisle in an unbiased kind of journalistic type of a, a manner, which is rare, I would say, in today's political environment. So anything you can give us that kind of summarizes your writings or any type of feedback that you've gotten from doing that? Yeah, I mean, I, I respect The Hill as well, like you mentioned, that they publish uh, kind of both sides of the aisle. And in terms of this issue, there hasn't really been a lot of writing about it. And as you mentioned, I think this is a relatively new thing that people are talking about. If you ask most doctors, they'll pretty much agree with our position. I think that we can allow medical students to practice at like a certain limited level if they don't match into residency. I think the main objection to that argument is that, well, if they didn't match to residency, maybe there's something wrong with them. Maybe they're not qualified. And I think that's a valid concern in some levels. I think the response to that is that a lot of residencies tend to rely heavily on metrics like test scores or reputation of the medical school you went to, like how famous it is. And these metrics don't always correlate to producing the best doctors. So I think part of what's going on right now in medical education is finding more holistic ways to review applicants. So we really do select the best people. 
what we're talking about right now is a federal issue with funding and the residencies and you're adding a ton of great color into kind of behind the scenes of working with these different types of programs, but medical licensing is always a state issue. So we've got to tiptoe this line in between federal and state issues. And I think that's what makes it very, very difficult to find any solutions. Have you had any work, you know, in your different organizations, have you had any success on either like a state level, you know, you mentioned Arizona and Georgia are looking at, at assistant physicians, or do you think that step one is going to be, you know, getting that federal budget increased from CMS? Where do we start on this particular subject? So, yeah, I think there are some bills that are currently in, in the federal Congress. Like one of your um, guests a few weeks ago mentioned that there's the Restoring Residency Protection Act, or I don't remember the exact name of it, but essentially it would increase the number of spots every year. I think that's a partial solution. I still don't think it officially addresses the mismatch and people going to rural areas. And there's also a shortage of primary care versus specialty care. The state level has been a little bit more successful, I think, because it seems the state legislatures seem more willing to take risks and they know the needs of their state better than the federal government does. Yeah. So, for example, Arizona and Missouri clearly have a disparity in healthcare in the rural areas. And they've known that providing access through uh, system physicians might be a way to alleviate that that same solution might not be viable in other states. So I do think states need, can take more initiative in suggesting these um, ideas. The one challenge, though, is that one of the benefits of being a doctor is that your license, while on paper is different in each state, you really can go to another state or even another country and you can just practice because your skill set is valuable in almost any place. The challenge is if we start adding too many layers of regulation, then people will be kind of limited to that one place and then they can't follow the market or go wherever they want to go um, if they get married or they have a life event or something like that. It's a good distinction for sure. And it, it just shows that there's a lot of work cut out for us. Dr. Chen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsors here. And then after that, I want to dive into kind of your personal experiences taking care of COVID patients and you know get your thoughts on the vaccine that's all the rage right now. Stay tuned. And we'll be back right after this. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, Green Imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one-third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, here again with Dr. Amir Hussein. And we were talking a little bit about, uh, before the break, about 
how we alleviate the residency problems and what it is working with people that, you know, in your own words, or if they can't match, people look at them as there's something wrong with them. And it's not always going to be the case, like you were talking when you were working on the COVID wards with them. So I wanted to get kind of your personal experience taking care of a lot of COVID patients early on in the pandemic. You were in New York. That was, I think, uh, the fastest growth rates or the highest per capita infection rates in the entire world was happening in New York. What was that like day in, day out? It was a very surreal experience. And what's interesting to me is that, uh, so a lot of specialties like dermatology, we require one year of general training and radiology and a few other specialties also require this. And every year the conversation gets brought up, like, why do we waste a year of our time doing general medicine? Like, if I'm only going to see skin disease for my whole life, why do I need this? And I can always point to that two weeks or three weeks in New York when we were having a very high per capita rate and death all the time. That's why we do the first year of medicine. Because pretty much anything that we learned up till that point needed to be implemented immediately. So we had about seven months that was relatively normal during my first year of being a doctor. And then suddenly in March, now we have medical students that are being working under us. We have doctors that are working from specialties that they're not really, uh, they, they have theoretically been trained in that, but they haven't practiced in that in many, many years. And now we're basically all in the same boat. There's no treatments that we know about. There's a few suggested treatments that they're all based on new papers that have just come out. So it rely, you have to kind of rely on your, your basic science training from medical school, what theoretically works, and then can you interpret evidence and make changes in real time based on what happens? So I'll give you an example. We had um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a theory that the COVID virus causes more clots than normal. So people are getting strokes and heart attacks at higher rates. And at that time, there was no official guidance on what to do. And I remember one of the senior doctors I worked with said, you know what, I'm reading enough about this. I'm just going to empirically start all my patients on a blood thinner. And we are still kind of analyzing the data from that. But that to me was a great example of how they use their own judgment and their interpretation of evidence to make changes in real time that probably help patients. Because if you see now, there's now a lot of guidance on patients being on blood thinners because they are at risk for strokes and heart attacks. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and you know, kudos for doctors being out there and being able to Unleash the brilliance of the medical mind, which is kind of what we do within Freedom Health Works and the direct care movement is, you know, get all that crap out of the way. Let doctors be doctors again and make the best decision for their patients. So, you know, I, I love that. But I mean, it, it had to be scary. I mean, we'll talk about some of the safety protocols. What was kind of your personal life going through this and treating people from wearing gowns and masks and the PPE? What was that like? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a shout out to my program that they did a great job giving us the adequate protection and making sure that we only were required to see patients once we, we were fully protected ourselves. And uh, there was regulations on, we had to get basically one mask per day. There was lines outside the door to get the masks, but there were enough for everybody. And then the gowns, and there was actually somebody standing outside each of the COVID rooms, and they would basically observe you put on your equipment to make sure you're doing it correctly. And then as you leave the room, the same thing, they would make sure you're disposing of it in a safe way. And I remember they gave us like hazmat suits. They really kind of went extra just to make sure that we were fully protected. I wow. never had to wear that, but I do have it as a souvenir. Wow. Well, I, nobody knew what was happening or what was going on or how bad was this virus? You know, is this the next Ebola or is this something else? And so it's like, right. oh man, just from the sidelines sitting there looking in, just kind of on the periphery of the medical industry, you're looking at saying, what is going on? Why is everything so much different? And, uh, you know, for you to be in there day in, day out, it's, 
you probably had some tough conversations with your family saying, Hey, this is, this is what's happening. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. My family was, I think more worried than I was. Uh, I was actually on a day off or two days off before the official lockdown happened. And then I had to go back to the hospital with all these new regulations in place. And I remember my family calling me all the time about what I was doing and how, like how I was protecting myself. I was very fortunate that I didn't actually catch COVID, you know, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I used to go home and as soon as I had a separate bag for my work clothes and home clothes, as soon as I walked in the door, I would go take a shower. And then I pretty much left most of my contaminated stuff at the hospital and would change there. As we kind of got more information, we realized that that was less of a problem. It was more airborne than, than surface borne. But I remember putting my phone in a plastic bag and using it rather than just like using it normally because we were just so worried about everything. Let's talk about uh, kind of current events here. Vaccinations are happening, you know, across the nation, across the world. There's some people kind of push back against, you know, getting the vaccine for whatever reason. What are your thoughts on uh, the just the different versions of the COVID vaccine? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I I personally received the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, Both Pfizer and Moderna use the same technology, which is mRNA. And I think people were initially worried because they were developed in a pretty fast timeline. It's actually the fastest time a vaccine's ever been developed in history. And I think one thing that people should realize is that the mRNA technology has been around for almost 30 years at this point, probably longer. And the reason nobody used it was because all the other diseases that we've encountered have actually been pretty well uh, neutralized with the existing technology. And the thing is, with COVID, there was basically finally a market to try out a new type of vaccine. And there was going to be regulatory assistance in getting it approved under emergency authorization. And it looks like, I mean, based on the trials, they seem to have almost 95% effective rate and very, very minor side effects in comparison to the risk of actually getting COVID. Hmm. And I think people should just realize that the trial process for these is extremely strict. And actually today, Merck, which is one of the biggest uh, vaccine producers, actually shut down two of their vaccines because they were unable to demonstrate effectiveness. So thing is, like, the vaccines have a lot of stuff riding on them. And the fact that we produced a really effective one within a few months is absolutely amazing and a real testament to the American ingenuity and all the people from all over the world that worked on these viruses. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And hats off to everybody who put who were able to put that together. But it does lead the question, you know, looking at the FDA, if this is possible, you know, the Operation Warp Speed, I think is what they called it, then what comes next for FDA approval processes? Are we going to see any type of reform? It's a good question. Uh, I think the challenge is that the FDA has to strike this balance between not approving things that are dangerous, but also approving things that are not only safe, but also effective. There's been a couple incidences uh, throughout their history. The best example is the thalidomide crisis back in the, um, I think the 60s, where Europe approved this drug that was supposed to treat morning sickness in women the FDA decided to wait for more data, and it turned out that this drug caused uh, severe birth defects. So the FDA has probably one of the best processes for evaluating the safety of drugs. And I do think under the Trump administration, they were pressured to relax some of those regulations, and there's been more of a push to allow people with terminal illnesses to attempt uh, getting certain drugs, even without approval. But I think they're always going to have this challenge of even if the drug is safe, doesn't necessarily mean it's effective. So in that case, like, what's the point of approving it if nobody's going to use it? And there have been examples of that, too. What do you think, uh, kind of wrapping up our episode here, the Biden administration's coming in, they're putting a, together a ton of executive orders, which I've never been a big fan of executive orders. I'm just going to put that out there to the audience because 
I really want Congress to get out there and do what's best for the American people and put some legislation together. But what are your opinions on um, the Biden administration push to streamline the uh, supply of, of the vaccinations, get it in the arms of people? What are your thoughts, just kind of high level and then take us down to the micro level? Sure. So I think first, it's good that they have a plan in place in terms of they want to distribute more vaccines. And actually, there's a few more vaccines that are currently pending approval. So the Johnson and Johnson vaccine would actually be one dose. But at the time of this interview, they're currently waiting on more trial data. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a few other companies around the world uh, that are still working on getting theirs approved. They just need to provide more data to the U.S. government. So I think the more supply of vaccines we have, the better it's going to get. I think the challenge is that there hasn't really been a federal effort to distribute vaccines. They've left it more to the states. And there's always this kind of tension of states do know their state better than the federal government. They probably have a good plan, but they don't really have a lot of insight into the number of vaccines they're getting. And some states have different requirements on who's getting vaccinated first. So I think some kind of national plan on coordinating the same for a few states, at least within the same region, that would, I think, make the public a bit have a bit more confidence and also would streamline the distribution process. Yeah, I agree with you that states really need to get it together and uh, get these plans out there. But that would be tough not knowing how many you're going to get. You know, if I get a million doses, okay, that that opens up this section of the most vulnerable. But if only half of those show up, what the heck am I supposed to do? You know, how do we how are we able to plan for that? So, yeah, I'll give you an example. Like, so I work in Washington, D.C. The initial vaccine doses were allocated based on population. So DC's population is probably about 700,000 or something. The challenge is though, we have a lot of hospitals in this area. And a lot of the people that live in Virginia and Maryland actually commute to DC for work. So what ended up happening was that they misallocated the number of doses for DC. So Maryland and Virginia actually gave us some of their supply. So even kind of basic things like that, like accounting for people traveling, or like I said, regional coordination might be somewhat helpful. Uh, Because I know Maryland and Virginia and DC all have different requirements on who gets vaccinated right now. Wow. Yeah. So it is good to see that the states are communicating saying, hey, we need more over here, over here. It, it, it really, you know, logistics, it comes down to it. And oh, gosh, as much uh, flack as we give the Postal Service for really getting behind on COVID, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's remarkable what USPS and UPS and, and FedEx are able to do with tracking numbers and things when vaccines and something that is really top of mind it's just not going very smoothly as much as we would like it, you know, and we have a lot, we have a large population too. So when do you see uh, based on everything you've done and all the research and and experiences, when do you see this vaccine being able to get into everybody's arms in a perfect world? So the challenge is that there's always going to be certain people that will not get the vaccine. Either they're still refusing it even after all the safety data comes out showing that it's fine or they have like a legitimate underlying condition where they're not supposed to get vaccines. Mm -hmm. There are not that many of those I can think of, but I'm sure they exist. So I don't know exact numbers on how many people that is, but assuming like 70 to 80% population getting vaccinated, which I think is what Dr. Fauci assumes is necessary for herd immunity. At this rate, it would take a long time. It would take months. But I think that we're underestimating how fast we can get other vaccines approved. And also uh, once this new administration kind of gets its footing and has people hired in cabinet jobs, I think we have a lot of a will and, and also they can learn from the both the successes and the failures of the Trump administration. And they have kind of this passing the baton where they're able to learn from that and try to take it forward. So I won't be able to give you a specific timeline. And then the other challenge is that there are people there are a lot of people that have COVID and have recovered. So how long does that immunity last? Nobody really knows. Right. And there's these new virus variants in uh, other countries that are coming. 
so far, it looks like the vaccines still might be pretty effective for them. And one of the benefits of the mRNA technology is that you can essentially put in the new virus's genome and then the vaccine works for that too, That's uh, which great. is kind of a great uh, proof of concept. And I hope that this vaccine will, this technology can be used for other really terrible diseases that we've so far not able to get vaccines for. There we go. Once again, hats off to American ingenuity, right? Yeah. And all the other people that have worked on this. And I mean, this is just a shout out to, um, I think the people that developed the Pfizer vaccine were initially um, Turkish immigrants who went to Germany and then also worked with the United States. So it just shows how important it is for all the countries to collaborate because this virus really does impact everyone. And we really need to kind of pull together as a community to make sure that we take care of it. Amen to that one. Dr. Hussain, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. For more information about direct primary care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. And to catch all of our episodes, visit healthcareamericana.com. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs, and employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.